Hello and welcome to a podcast version of Cabby Chronicles. Stories about driving in Eugene at night. By Possum. I'm Possum and I'll be your host. This first section is called Introduction Metamorphosis. It's kind of like a preface. Midway through this journey of our life, I found myself driving a green cab minivan. Prior to that, I'd spent several months in unemployment hell, living off the inheritance of my mother's estate and still grieving her untimely death when I saw a Craigslist ad. Nighttime cab drivers wanted. Something clicked. Something about being a nighttime cabbie seemed to fit with the nihilistic trajectory my life had taken. Of course, I responded. There was no interview process, just a phone call, some paperwork, a couple background checks, a permit thing, a little waiting around, and finally a training shift in which I was paired with another driver for a few hours and shown the ropes. Within a week or so, I was driving on my own. Easiest job I ever got. It turns out that being a nighttime cabbie offers one the benefit of an infinite wealth for riding material. After driving for several months, sometimes up to 60 hours a week, I'd already posted a number of stories about the strangeness of the night on social media. Friends and family encouraged me to keep riding them. Some people actually liked them, I guess. So I kept posting them, and they kept reading them. And eventually some folks were like, write a book. So I decided at some point I would write a book, or a zine, or maybe do a podcast or something. Why not? I mean, here I was driving around all these weird, funny, brilliant, stupid, crazy, sometimes kind and generous, sometimes mean and angry, oftentimes drunk and or drug-induced people. By now I've driven thousands of people home from bars and strip clubs who would have never made it home safely otherwise. I've occasionally had to kick belligerent passengers out of my cab and get in some near fights, and some actual ones too, in which I thought I might either have to kill or be killed. I've had to deal with plenty of rapey dudes and a few gropey chicks. I've spent countless hours watching people in the streets while the 3am lull dragged on. Hours gazing into the abyss of poverty, addiction, madness, and all the violent consequences of a profit-based healthcare system that literally throws people out in the streets. I've driven traumatized and battered individuals to hourglass and women's space. I've driven others to sketchy parking lots or side streets lined with broken-down RVs and littered with hypodermic needles. I've taken hundreds of people to and from hospitals and dialysis appointments and methadone clinics and the White Bird Crisis Clinic, mostly courtesy of RideSource, our state-funded program to help low-income folks get around here in Eugene. 
I've driven male and female and gender non-binary strippers to and from work, listening to their stories with rapt interest. But more often I've driven their clients, who span the entire range of the class hierarchy. I've driven sex workers on their way to meet clients. I've driven addicts on late night missions to score. And I've driven overdosing addicts to the hospital on at least two occasions. I once had a genuinely amazing conversation about the philosophy of love while driving a bachelor party to the strip club. I once drove a mother and her newborn baby home from the hospital. I once drove a 93-year-old woman home from the hospital while she sang me Irish ballads. Once I even drove a bag of blood from one hospital to another. It felt strange to look at this biological agent occupying a place on my passenger seat where normally a whole person would be. Writing this memoir was a process of expanding some things I'd been posting on social media for several months, and overall just trying to craft the stories into something more like a synchronous narrative, spanning the period of my life from April of 2018 to October of that same year. The stories started out kind of funny and weird, but as the process of writing them down got more intense, they started to reach for a central theme, or unifying concept or at least a central feeling or range of emotions, and thus it seemed logical to have them all coalesce in the strangeness of the night. I must have figured at some point I could use the cab driver's perspective as something like a connecting thread, as well as a mirror to show the town to itself, as though in microcosm. Thus Possum the cabbie was born. Of course, it still wasn't finished. <clears throat> A few more stories would have to be written, and some of these have taken me a long time to write down because they were still too disturbing to think about while I was in the grind of the busy work week. And so for a long time they got buried under the stress of daily life, until I finally forced myself to sit down, confront some unpleasantries, and dig them up again. In this sense, I suppose writing has been a little therapeutic. And that's how this project came to be. All that really remains to be said here is that every story I've related in the course of this memoir is objectively true in its details. You'll have to take a possum's word on it, though. And now that I've lingered too long at the threshold of your journey through my darkness, dear passenger, I shall let the night's testimony speak for itself. Episode number one, The Deer. Before I read this, I just want to introduce the uh, listener to one of the main characters of the Cabby Chronicles, and that is Van 111, a 2005 Toyota Sienna with 600,000 plus miles on it. I think it had been through at least a couple alternators. Anyway. <clears throat> Last night about 3 a.m., while driving my cab north along Delta Highway toward Beltline, just past the Neon Bridge, 
which always seems to me out of place with the rest of Eugene's bland architecture. Suddenly off in the distance, I notice the vague outline of a deer lying down with its head up, right smack in front of me in the middle of my lane as I'm barreling towards it at 60 miles an hour. I swerve at the last millisecond to avoid it. Fortunately, I don't have a passenger, and pull over about 100 yards up the road with my hazards on, still cognitively debating what the fuck I just saw and what the fuck I should do. Somehow it occurs to me to park my van and start running along the shoulder of the highway, flailing my arms, which I do. A hundred or so yards up the road, headlights. I'm running and flailing my arms as wildly as possible as if to motion. Stop! But I have no idea what the fuck I'm really doing. But in retrospect, it occurs to me that perhaps this isn't a good way to get anyone to stop at three in the morning. I'm still about 60 yards away from the deer when a car swerves and barely misses it and then flies by me. But a second car right behind the first one swerves, pulls over, and against all odds, does stop pretty quick. A beautiful young woman, maybe in her 20s, emerges from a shiny sports car. She's woke. She sees what's going on here. Did you hit it? She yells. No, but I think it's alive! I yell back. In a flash second, we're both running together along the highway, and soon there we are as though on a moonlit stage. The three of us. Your lethargic cabbie slash narrator, Possum. This beautiful woman, and this phased creature which I'd guess had just got recently uh, clipped by a passing car. The deer starts to take notice of us as we draw closer, tries to stand up, and then falls back a couple of times. No visible blood or wounds or anything, though. A good sign. And suddenly, as though in the final act of will, the deer heals upward, gets its footing, wobbles a bit, and we're so rooting for the deer at this point. And then, oh shit! The deer hops right over the median into the oncoming lane of traffic in the direction of Delta Ponds, and there's a fucking semi barreling straight towards it. Seems to be all over for this deer. And we're all like, No! 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 And the combined power of our Disney voices intervenes like fate. The deer hops safely across the highway and gets away just as the giant semi blows by practically brushing its tail. Sorry, uh, my kitty cat, Matilda, here is really enjoying this story, and uh, not a very helpful accomplice as a narrator, but she will occasionally intrude in the course of these memoirs. Now, if life were a Hollywood movie, this would be the spontaneous make-out scene, or this moment when we look into each other's eyes as though we'd just done something epic and rattle off a bunch of trite cliches, or at least slap each other a high five and go on our way. But mundane reality being what it is, of course that didn't happen. We just quietly went back to our cars. All I could think of to say was something like, Hey, thanks for stopping. And as I jogged back to my cab, I could hear her muttering something under her breath about those idiots that didn't even stop.
Episode number two, The Roaming Patient. Last night I got a ride source called a Peace Health, giving an elderly woman a ride home. It's around two or three in the morning. She's tiny and frail, totally non-threatening, and talks to herself in non-sequiturs like someone struggling with Alzheimer's or dementia. After driving her for about ten minutes, during which she babbles the whole time, we get to a house somewhere in the hills of South Eugene. She gets out of the cab without incident, but then the unexpected happens. Instead of going inside the house, she wanders off into the forest behind the house. I tell dispatch about it, and they're like, Yep, that's a problem. After an unsuccessful attempt to reach Cahoots, our mobile crisis unit here in Eugene, I venture out to try and find her on my own. Eventually she comes out from the trail whence she disappeared, mumbling, and I ask her why she isn't going into the house, but she just mumbles something unclear. Then all of a sudden an old man comes out of the house, realizes that I'm a cab driver, pulls me aside, and gently explains to me that this woman's mother used to live in the house, but died years ago. He owns the house now, and for months past this tiny, frail old woman has been trying to come back to it. My heart broke for a moment, for I could understand her grief. I tell the old man sorry for the mix-up. We wish each other luck, and I'm set on driving this lady straight back to Peace Health where I found her. And she's willing to let me drive her there, but she wants me to take her to McDonald's or Fred Meyer or Motel 6 although she seems to have no way of paying for this. In any case, nothing much is open at this hour. I say, okay, and thus I have to trick her to get her back in my cab. I drive her straight back to Peace Health where I found her, but only to find out from the lobby area nurse that they don't really want her back, apparently. She has been discharged. So, of course, I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do with her? The nurse tells me I can call the police. No longer trying to hide my frustration at this point, I'm like, you fucking call the police. I don't know what effect this had, but at least it became clear that I wasn't leaving with the old lady in my van. Clearly, something would have to be done with her. Eventually, Nurse Ratchet and some security personnel are willing to help me coax the old lady out of my cab but we would have to trick her one more time to get her to come out. During this verbal eviction, Nurse Ratchet is unhelpful for the most part, talking to the old woman in a loud instructional voice, as though we weren't dealing with a mental patient but a two-year-old child. The old woman just looks confused and scared, but finally she does come out on her own and then wanders off into the night. After Nurse Ratchet leaves, a security guard, a young Latino woman, talks to me briefly. I tell her I'm not mad at anyone, just frustrated that we had to throw an old senile woman out onto the street. She sympathizes genuinely, says something about half a million empty homes and we can't care for our most vulnerable. We say goodbye to each other, and as I speed off into the night, I can see the old woman in my rearview mirror trying to flag me down again. I keep going, trying to bury my conscience, 
for I know there are at least a hundred more like her on these streets any given night of the week. And yes, it breaks my fucking heart. Episode number three, The Aristocrats. Driving my cab last night, around two in the morning, I got a call to the ER at Peace Health. Four people climb into my van, all 20-somethings, and they all seem to be either in Victoria-era cosplay outfits or really just into 19th century fashion, except the one who is wearing a hospital gown with a gauze bandage around his head and gauze in his nose. The three aristocratic friends are all carrying some fluid bags that look like they might be hooked up to IVs, almost as if to suggest that they had just broke their friend out of the hospital. They were all in good spirits, laughing and loving one another. Eventually I hear a woman's voice from the far back seat, underneath a black felt hat, say, Yeah, that was a bad idea. I feel sort of responsible. The rest of them consoled her. It wasn't her fault. God, that was such a bad idea, she says again. They all laugh in unison. Soon their ride is over. And whatever myriad possibilities combined to set that strange chain of events into motion, of which I have no more precise details than what I have set forth here, dissolve in the sublime mysteries of the night. Episode number four, The Little Girl. Driving my cab last night, I got a call around 10 p.m. to take a woman and her daughter home. The mother was soft-spoken, graceful, lovely as a sunflower, with long blonde braids and a flowing dress. Her daughter, who I'd guess is maybe six or seven years old, is probably the most adorable little girl I've ever met. I remember her big chocolate brown eyes olive skin, and huge oval-shaped face with short brown hair tucked away at the sides into lovin' Tokyos, or whatever you call those little elastic bands with the beads on them. She had a commanding presence for a child her age, not bossy as is generally the way with children, but commanding by virtue of an intense, perhaps even precocious curiosity, which beamed in her eyes like twin stars. Pinwheel in hand, now she was master of situations. She'd oscillate between asking me intelligent questions about my day and chirping to us all about hers. There were some art projects she'd been working on. She'd recently gone on some kind of camping retreat. And then something about a surprise party, yada yada. Eventually, we pull into their neighborhood and there's a cat sitting in the middle of the road. I slow to a crawl until I'm in a motionless face-off with a small butterscotch tabby reassuring my passengers that I always stop for the little critters. And I do. The cat runs away and crouches under a parked car. Meanwhile, the little girl tells me they should have kitty crossing signs like they have duck crossing signs. Because, you know, some neighborhoods have a lot of kitties. And then she told me some neighborhoods have turtle crossing signs, 
but you have to wait a little longer at those because turtles are really slow and sometimes they get smushed. I stared at her in astonished disbelief and asked, Where are these turtle crossings? Because I want to be a turtle crossing guard so that I can just carry them across the road and sort of hang out with them and make sure they don't get smushed. We both agreed that that would be like the coolest job ever. Soon their ride is over. The mom thanks me and tips me generously, partly in weed. As they're getting out, the little girl asks me something about my mommy, and I can only mutter the words to tell her that my mommy has gone away, or something like that. She looks confused for a moment, and then smiles a huge, tooth-filled smile as she leaves. We exchange a pinky shake through the driver's side window. As I pull away into the night, I watch the silhouette of the little girl shepherding her dog inside, like some kind of magical child matriarch. Episode number five, Owners slash the Marxist Ecologist. In the life of cab drivers, there is this person who is referred to as your owner. Your owner is the owner of your vehicle. There are company owners too, but these are never referred to as your owner. You'll hear cab drivers ask each other, with no hint of irony whatsoever, Who's your owner? Absurd as it sounds, it becomes a routine, well-rehearsed line in the script when you drive cabs, almost like a greeting. A typical response would be, Mike, or John. Typically, at the end of the night, slash morning next day, drivers drop off a lease to the owner of their vehicle. My lease is currently $125 per night. The lease is partly for the vehicle's maintenance, partly for the opportunity to turn up as much profit as possible in the given space of time, generally a 12-hour shift. This also means that on extremely slow nights, drivers might turn up nothing, and in rare cases might even lose money, since we have to pay for gas and for cleaning the car. Cab driving is all about the hustle, what you can make over and above these expenses, lease, gas and cleaning in a given window of time is yours to keep. This is why cab drivers are always in a hurry and hate for their time to be wasted. Time is money. All that me and my owner talk about, and mainly via text, is the vehicle. Any new dings, tail lights out, car burning oil faster than it should, etc. Every once in a while, though, as a cabbie, you and your owner are forced to talk on the phone. And then you might share some stories, talk about the events of the night, and so on. I'd say I have a pretty good business relationship currently with my owner. But I do feel the less I know about his personal life, the better. And he probably feels the same way about me. That's because we both know either of us is equally poised to screw over the other if there are any misgivings between us. Tonight I had to call my owner, 
whose politics I don't dare to guess at and who has never questioned mine. And I had to say something like, Hey, I need to swap my Tuesday night out for something else ASAP. Wednesday, maybe? And he was like, Cool. Done. Since phone conversations usually go more than a few seconds, just for formality's sake, we talk briefly about recent sordid nocturnal events. For example, whatever happened to that driver that got busted on meth a couple of weeks back? Or, hey, did you know that old security guard that got shot in the face behind the Four Corners bar the other night? Fucking tragic, man. These things actually happened. And then maybe a stupid joke about the car, and that's it. Conversation's done. Incidentally, the reason I'm swapping out my Tuesday night shift is so that I can audit one of the Marxist ecologist professor's graduate-level classes on sociology at the University of Oregon. I met him tonight at a talk on socialist ecology that someone gave at Tsunami Books. I told him I'd read some of his work. He asked me a little about myself. I told him I'd ditched my fine career as an adjunct philosophy professor to drive cabs, which was mostly sarcasm, but true. He gave me a curious look, and finally I was like, well, I'd love to audit one of your classes if you'd let me. And he was like, sure, this is what we're reading right now. You're welcome to come by. And thus, at least in part, this little writing project was conceived. Soon I'll be digging into Marx's capital with a bunch of serious-minded folks at a beautiful university in the heart of our quaint little town. Meanwhile, once night falls, I'll become the very subject of my own research. But then I'll be out prowling the streets in Van 111, rushing the tired flight crews to the airport and the tired sex workers back to their domiciles and chauffeuring around whoever else lurks in the night. Then I'll be chatting it up with the late-night bouncers and gas station attendants, swapping sordid tales with the other cabbies at the car wash, dodging the opossums and the tweakers and the drunk frat boys, blasting Bauhaus and Godspeed You Black Emperor and Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 3 and D Minor Op. 30, and K-Wax with classical music host Peter Vandegraaft through the quiet neighborhood streets, trying to find a place to piss at 4 a.m., taking in the sheer wonder and wild nocturnal strangeness of it all. Episode number six, A Douche from SoCal. The other night I got a call to Rennie's Landing, a place I hate going to on weekend nights only because it gets a lot of the overflow from Taylor's, the worst bar in Eugene, mainly due to hyper-masculine debauchery and rapey stuff that goes on there, though it's easy enough to hate the place for other reasons, like the drunken sense of entitlement associated with such places, which passengers tend to inflict on their drivers with a notable frequency, thus making it a campus area to avoid. Anyway, to my story. 
I pull up. There's a huge Friday night crowd outside Taylor's and Rennie's, and a guy gets in my van yelling that his eyes are burning. He's a buff white dude, probably in his late 20s or early 30s. One of those gym bro types who wears, I'd guess, lots of affliction t-shirts. He tells me he just got pepper sprayed in the face, and then, with hyperbolic airs, mutters something about Eugene being a town full of faggots. This probably should have been my cue to kick him out, brass knucks at the ready. But after driving cabs for a while, one becomes a little less likely to react to some of the infantile shit-talking that's almost par for the course on any given night of the week. Kicking people out requires more mental and physical energy than driving some asshole five minutes somewhere. And besides, I kind of wanted to hear what happened. What happened, as I was able to piece it together, was this. Jimbro is at the bar, somehow gets into a conversation with a mixed-race couple, black dude, white girlfriend, and drops the N-bomb. Black dude says something about that not being cool. Jimbro doesn't understand why black dude can say it but not him. Shit escalates from there. White girlfriend pepper sprays Jimbro's face. And then, when no one stands up for Jimbro's right to free speech, he is left ostracized. Thus, Eugene is a town full of faggots. It might go without saying, or even pass as a local inside joke, that there's a line of PC respectability that no one shall cross in Eugene, not even at this campus bar, where any sorority girl can enforce the unwritten rule. The rest of this story is a foregone conclusion. At this point, I'm sort of trying to suppress my laughter, and so I ask Jimbro where he's from. I'm driving him to Valley River Inn, so I can assume he's from out of town. He says San Diego, SoCal. And by now, my textbook image of douchebaggery is almost complete. When we pull into the hotel lobby, Jimbro is ready to jump out of my van and stick his head under the faucet. After you pay me, I tell him with my stern face, he feels around for his credit card, finds it at last, and throws it at me. I take my time running it, give it back to him, and burst with laughter as he runs into the hotel. And as I drive off into the night, I imagine Jim Bro among his locker room pals back in SoCal, still whining about this town full of faggots that is Eugene, Oregon. And for the first time in my experience, I'm feeling kind of proud to be from Eugene. Episode number seven, Strip Club Ethics. One night I drove a guy home from the strip club who was, how shall we say, a little cognitively slow. Anyway, he talked the whole time about how he was going to marry this dancer at the club. I mean, like, really actually get married. He kept saying something like, She tells me I need to bring her $200 so I can get married. But he wouldn't be getting his disability check for like another two weeks, so he was worried about whether he was going to be able to get married. I drop him off, and as he walks up to his subsidized housing unit, I can still hear him bumbling in the night about his love. 
Now, I know things look a little different from a dancer's perspective. Their job is none other than to satisfy a male fantasy, for the most part. It's a hustle, and every strip club patron should know this upon entering. It's not unusual for the dancers to give out their phone numbers. This is all part of the hustle, and serves as a confidence booster for lonely men and maybe some women. How often do I hear my passengers say, Man, I got this stripper's number! as though it were due to some personal charm. I get all this, the manipulation, I mean, and it doesn't bother me at all. The level of manipulation it takes to con a man with cognitive disabilities into thinking he's getting married, however, does bother me a little, I must confess. This brings the hustle to a whole new level, and seems to cross a few ethical boundaries, even in the world of strip club ethics, where those boundaries are pretty vague to begin with. I've repeated this story to a few dancers who have been my passengers at one time or another and asked them their thoughts. The best response I ever got was, Well, everyone should know you don't go to the strip club to find love. Episode number 8, Boys Don't Cry. Last night in my cab, I drove a guy home who was having an asthma attack, which turned into a panic attack. He was a young guy, probably in his early 20s. He told me his grandpa had died recently. This event seemed to have shaken him up pretty bad, leading him on a metaphysical search for God and eternity. But you've probably heard all that before, so I'm sorry, he said. I told him half-jokingly that that's what cab drivers are for, so we should just go ahead and pour it out. He tensed up as we got on the highway, probably as a result of PTSD from car accidents. He mentioned that he'd been in a few pretty bad ones. Our conversation had become fairly existentialist by this point, with him talking about not wanting to die, and me reassuring him that he'd be okay, that this pain we feel is a result of love we have known, and this is just the sticky stuff of life. At some point, I even started speaking in poetic tropes, like, every rose has its thorn, and such. Eventually, he became quiet and started to cry, and then began apologizing for his crying, as American men are often accustomed to do when they are caught doing unmanly things in public. I told him he can cry all he wants in my cab, that it feels good to cry, that I even encourage it. I told him that I'd been crying every day for the past year since my mom died, which was an exaggeration, but seemed to have the intended effect. Really? he asked. About five minutes away from his house, he asked me if I would do him a favor, if I would hold his hand. It was an odd request. There was nothing sexual about it, though and he seemed genuinely terrified. I gave him my hand, and he held on to it for the remainder of the ride. I could feel little intermittent squeezes on my palm, as if from one trembling and clinging to dear life. Right before we turned onto his street, he asked me if I believe in God. I replied something to the effect that how we treat others is probably more important than what we believe, for I had no desire in that moment to explain my atheism to someone in the throes of an existential crisis. 
Before he left, I asked him if he wanted a hug, and he totally went for it. We had one of those long, intimate hugs. I drove off into the night listening to Boys Don't Cry by The Cure as loud as I could, and as I flew through the shadows of the tall trees along Prairie Road, the tears welled in my eyes and fell down my face in giant, full-sized droplets. I thought of my mother's smiling face, and it seemed as if some cathartic balm had washed over me. Episode number nine, Goth Twins. A few months back, I got a call out to the Bethel neighborhood. It was a perfect summer day, almost sunset. I pull up, wait for my passengers, start getting impatient because it's taken them a while to come out. Meter is running, goddammit. They finally come out, get in the cab. We drive toward downtown. One of them says something about how I don't look like a cab driver, which I guess is supposed to be a compliment. Yeah, I try to beat the stereotypes. They laugh at this, but something strikes me as odd about their laughter, like how darkly synchronized and creepy it is. I look up in my rearview mirror and suddenly realize that I'm dealing with a pair of identical twin sisters, maybe in their 30s. They're dressed in black lace with black lipstick. There is something enchantingly beautiful about them, but like beautiful in the way that ravens are beautiful, or a symphony of locusts, or Susie Sue's eyeliner. Of course, I did that thing all people probably do when they encounter these split sperm doubles for the first time, which is to state the obvious. So, you're twins. I can tell by the way you laugh. They laugh again in chorus, and one of them mumbles something about how their laugh has been likened to a slow cackle, which couldn't be more accurate. From the rest of the trip, I gathered that my twin goth passengers were mothers. My mind went wild in search of Adam's family references, but came up with none. I also learned that both had gotten pregnant within, like, a week of each other. Both now have toddlers almost the exact same age, and both work at the same place. Tonight was their first night out, sans children in ages. They were going to have quality sister time and get shit-faced, and who could blame them? When we approached the Barmuda slash downtown Eugene area, they had been finishing each other's sentences for the whole ride to the point that their voices melted into one spellbinding, univocal chatter, spontaneously dissolving at intervals into that slow cackle. As they got out of my cab near the Davis restaurant, I half expected them to pull their heads right off their necks and start juggling them back and forth. But they didn't. They just bid me farewell in that darkly ironic tone of raven-like creatures, accustomed to speaking in the language of sarcasm, Perhaps because that's one way of being direct and honest, without being judged too harshly by the norms of patriarchal society. I watched as their twin bodies shifted and disappeared into that dystopian sea of humanity, and their slow cackle did haunt me all through the night.
Episode number 10, Wu-Tang Dude. Well, last night sucked because I got stuck with a drunk guy who kept trying to climb over the passenger seat from the back seat. And every time I asked him where he lived, he would just reply in a drunken slur. When I say woo, you say tang, woo! He literally could not say anything else. He was a 42-year-old white dude, in good shape for his age. I'd picked him and his friend up as a flag fair, big mistake, from a bar called the Flying Squirrel. But the friend, who had navigated me to some place out in the South Hills, hopped out of the car early on and disappeared into the night. He'll tell you where he lives, he said, gesturing toward Wu-Tang Dude. Uh, yeah, okay. It wasn't long after dropping his friend off that I realized Wu-Tang Dude wasn't going to be able to tell me a goddamn thing, and I was going to be stuck with him for a while. I stopped and opened the door. He tumbled out. He wasn't belligerent or anything, just wasted, way too drunk to stand up, precisely at that point of drunkenness where any attempt to stand would have resulted in a kamikaze dive, head first, in whatever direction he happened to stumble. He took a couple dives in the grass on the side of the road before I figured I should probably help him sit down. But now he was passing out, and there was nothing I could do for it except call Cahoots, our mobile crisis unit, and wait for them to arrive. It took about 30 or 40 minutes. I had basically kicked him out of my cab at this point. Not that it made much difference, because now I'd have to sit around with him in the cold anyway while we waited for the town social workers who I cannot help but think of as the town's guardian angels. The best I could do was put a dirty towel under Wu-Tang Dude's head, the one I generally use for cleaning the car. As we waited for cahoots, a series of strange things happened. It's around three in the morning, Everything is eerily quiet. At this point, I'm stopped at a three-way intersection somewhere in the sylvan south hills of Eugene with my hazards on, smoking cigarettes outside my cab to pass the time. A couple lights are on in some nearby houses, but there's no one in sight anywhere. Wu-Tang Dude is lying sprawled out in the gutter with his head still on my back tire, completely passed out, but still breathing. I did check. It's a little chilly, but somehow I feel as if I can hear the subtle sounds of all the little forest creatures in the night. It's the witching hour, the hour of the bandit-faced raccoons and the fat little opossums on their nightly forays into the urban jungle, scavenging food from the garbage cans and dumpsters throughout the city. They're probably looking down at us from the hilltops and surrounding trees, wondering or perhaps laughing at this comic spectacle of human stupidity. Suddenly, a voice rang out from a block or so away. It was someone singing opera, their falsetto voice piercing the night with its deep, sexy baritone. It would come on and off intermittently, fading into silence. But from where I was, it seemed like it could have just been some disembodied voice. The thought even crossed my mind that it could be some kind of forest nymph trying to lure me to my death. And then suddenly... From another direction, I noticed three deer walking slowly down the middle of the road right towards me. A couple does and a large fawn, I think. They seemed like some kind of omen sent to me from deep within the forest, as if they had been delegated by the satyrs or centaurs to tell me something. They just stared straight into my eyes as they walked right past me, 
totally unafraid, and I stared straight back into their huge black eyes in which I felt as if I could sense something profound and primitive at the core of our mutual animal curiosity. Yes, it seemed to say, we are one and the same. Never forget this. Was it the late ghost spirit of my dear mother come to visit me, perhaps? By the time our social workers walked on the scene, Wu-Tang Dude was out cold, still sprawled out in the gutter with his head on my back tire. A man and a woman emerged from the top-heavy cahoots van and immediately struck me as some kind of postmodern knights of late-stage capitalism with their sexy white bird uniforms and walkie-talkies and first-aid devices all strapped around their waists. This was no top priority for them. After all, they'd had more urgent matters to respond to, like the hundreds of town junkies and tweakers running riot on Eugene's streets on any given night of the week. Their graceful movements and calm, soothing voices struck me as the gold standard of professionalism. They finally got Wu-Tang Dude to sit up straight after a few minutes of trial and error, and I watched as they checked his vitals, tried to figure out where he lived, and so on. But all they could find on his person was an ID with a Portland address, and all he could respond was still the very same, I say woo, you say tang, woo! This shattered their stoic concentration a little, and we all couldn't help but laughing. Meanwhile, the three deer that had walked by me earlier lingered within a few yards of us, just watching the whole spectacle with rapt attention, and the operatic voice came back again. All the mystery and strangeness of the night had never felt so palpable. I drove off shortly after Cahoots arrived and went straight home. There was still about three hours left on my shift, but I'd had enough and I was calling it quits for the night. I just couldn't deal with any more of this shit. Wu-Tang Dude hadn't paid me, but then... I hadn't exactly been able to get him home, either, and now I was too mentally exhausted to care. Even Stephen. Three lessons for all of us. One, don't be this guy, ever. Two, don't overserve people. You're probably just passing the buck to a cab driver. And number three, in case you forgot, Wu-Tang Clan ain't nothing to fuck with. Episode number 11, Night Safari. While driving cabs at night, there's hardly anything more satisfying to me than hanging out with some human strangers in a car, making their acquaintance, when some crepuscular or nocturnal creatures cross our path, a herd of deer grazing in the median along Franklin, or a family of skunks crossing the road near Fern Ridge, or a couple baby raccoons spying on us from a storm drain on Main Street or a lonesome opossum skittering around some quiet neighborhood. And we just sit there and watch, spellbound, like we're on a night safari. For these are the beautiful moments of life wherein our humanity is revealed in some way. The opossums, Didelphus virginiana, are my favorite little creatures of the night, hence I have taken my namesake from them. 
Something about the way their streaked dun fur bristles under the streetlights, or their silly alligator mouths, or their prehensile tails, or their amazing reproductive capacities. They can have up to 20 babies in a single litter, according to National Geographic Online, though less than half of these generally survive to maturity. Or the way their mothers carry their little babies on their backs. Or their remarkable posturing and tendency to dissimulate, as John James Audubon remarks in the third volume of his ornithological biography. Unfortunately, most of the opossums I see are dead ones on the side of the road, and it still breaks my heart each and every time and makes me feel terrible about the fact that we even have this stupid car culture and fossil fuel economy, which are totally unsustainable by any ecological standard. Thus it may seem a nice bit of irony that I, possum, career driver, can simultaneously hold this perspective in my teeth and make my living by burning up gazillions of gallons of regular unleaded gasoline. My guilty pleasure here is a love of driving, pure and simple. I make no defense, except that Mama Possum had the same disease. So, heredity, I guess. But to my point about roadkill, maybe we could all help minimize this by just learning to drive a little better. Slowing down when we're driving at night, using our bright lights on dark streets, covering our brake when we have the slightest hunch something might jump out in front of us, and really just trusting our good driver instincts a little more, not taking stupid risks just to save a few minutes. It's been suggested to me by some passengers that I should check dead opossums on the side of the road whenever I see them, because one might be a mama with live babies. This can be a disgusting task, especially if guts have been splattered. But I have actually begun doing it. I'm only afraid of what will happen if I actually find a litter of a strange baby opossum some night on the side of the road. I mean, I wouldn't know what to do with one of these, let alone an entire litter. Where would I take them? To my place? To hang out with my hairless kitties that kind of look like opossums? Somehow this is very tempting. Pro tip. If you ever need to pick up an opossum, assuming you have good intentions, you can pick them up by the scruff of the back of the neck and grab the tail with your free hand and move them wherever they need to go in order to have more babies and flourish. They'll probably growl and hiss a bit and bare their teeth but this is mostly just the defensive posture they will assume before literally shitting themselves and playing dead, which seems to be the opossum's last resort for hanging on to dear life. They can bite, but if you're quicker than the average opossum, as the average person is, you can probably avoid getting bit. And as we all know by now from meme culture, opossums just like to eat ticks and are almost entirely immune from carrying rabies. Please treat them with love and kindness. Episode number 12, Travelers. I should mention as a footnote to this story that the word travelers is just kind of a catch term used uh, to refer to homeless people in Eugene, or maybe more specifically, people living on the streets. If there's one Eugene subculture that stands to my mind as most worthy of writing about, it's the travelers, quote-unquote. 
By these we mean to cast a wide umbrella. Suffice to say that at three in the morning in Eugene, on any given night of the week, you will see darkly clad figures looking like something out of Mad Max, riding beat-up bikes with bike trailers carrying chopped-up bike parts along city streets. There must be dozens of these on the streets on any given night of the week. Having managed to drive this long and not hit one of these is something of an accomplishment. Petty crime flourishes here, and Eugene has been called the bike thief capital of the world, a reputation that's well deserved. At three in the morning you will see all kinds of decrepit and shadowy figures huddled around the Eugene Mission, the Salvation Army, and every 7-Eleven in Jackson's and Derry Mart in town. Some just hanging out or smoking cigarettes, some rocking to and fro to stay warm, some doped up on black tar heroin, some tweaked on methamphetamine, some hallucinating on shrooms or LSD, some zonked on Oxycontin, some just drunk or stoned into oblivion or jacked up on caffeine or who knows what. You'll see tent colonies, rows of broke-down RVs, alleyway bonfires, zombie-eyed street urchins roaming the Whitaker at all hours or along Main Street in Springfield, barricaded encampments along the Willamette occupied by dreadlocked kids. You'll see old men and women in rags fishing aluminum cans out of every trash can along River Road. You'll see people huddled in the bushes of store parking lots. You'll see the motley downtown crowd around Keezy Square or outside the Horsehead in Lucky's, wailing on guitars and banjos or cussing at the moon. You'll see the more seasoned travelers pushing shopping carts full of their lives only remaining assets. You'll see people buried under tarps and blankets on street corners and in storefronts, etc., etc., etc. All of this rises to the level of local politics, and the cities of Eugene and Springfield have responded to it in a number of ways, such as the forced sweeps by the cops, which only succeed in moving people around, for the most part, from one location to another, or the more recent attempts to ban dogs and panhandling from areas with high foot traffic. All of this seems to have been unsuccessful for the most part. It has led to some ongoing pitch battles between travelers and local business owners, as well as many residents. And in any case, no matter where one lives, it is virtually impossible to ignore. Attitudes in Eugene Springfield toward the traveler phenomenon vary, but among the passengers I drive around, they can mostly be lumped into one of three general outlooks. Either one, they hate it because it's an eyesore and these people are always in the way. Two, if my passengers are already social justice warriors or people who work with the homeless or do advocacy or volunteer work or go to college and take social theory classes, they might see homelessness merely as a systemic problem of unmet needs and thus refuse to see it as a moral issue. Or three, and by far the most common, are the ambivalent NIMBY types, the not-in-my-backyard folks who perhaps acknowledge all of our universal human needs and everyone's right to these, but do not care to be the ones to help others meet those needs and would certainly freak out if they encountered someone masturbating in their backyard. 
I will not discuss here whether masturbation is a universal human need, but if sexual needs are, in fact, universal human needs, then the question remains as to where people experiencing homelessness are supposed to satisfy those needs. Without taking a position one way or another, I will try to compensate by offering two anecdotal stories about travelers I've encountered. For convenience sake, I'm going to refer to them as the junkie and the boy with angel eyes. Episode number 13, The Junkie. I picked him up in my cab somewhere over off Main Street in Springfield. A ragged-looking white dude, maybe in his 30s, with grimy black hair and a scarred and pockmarked face. Exactly like so many other heroin addicts I've seen. It must have been around midnight or sometime after, and it's likely he was coming from the house getting raided by the cops a couple blocks away. He gets in the back of my van looking like a slow-motion train wreck, immediately asks if he can use my phone. It's really important. And thinking he's just going to make a quick phone call, I let him use it. Big mistake. Suddenly it occurs to me that he's not sure where he wants me to take him, hence the phone call. I'm probably just thinking to myself, you know, okay, whatever, let's just get this done quickly. As he's fidgeting with my phone and I'm driving him to some unknown destination, which keeps changing in the course of two minutes as the meter is running up, he finally says he wants me to take him to Sherry's on Pioneer Parkway. So we go there and wait. Finally, some guy pulls up in a 5.0 Mustang, who I'd assume is his drug dealer, hands me a $20 bill for his stupid-ass friend, quote-unquote. The meter was up to about $19 when I cut it off, and the two of them drive off. At this point, I'm just relieved that it's over. But it's not like, over, over. As I'm driving off trying to wipe away any bacterial agents on my phone, it starts blowing up through the Messenger app. Messages like, where are you? And yay, and come by, start to show up. Meanwhile, I'm just wondering, how the fuck are these people messaging me? Soon my phone is blowing up with what seems like every heroin dealer in Springfield and Eugene trying to find me. Where are you? Later on, as I'm getting gas at Jackson's, I'm able to figure out what happened. The junkie had somehow linked his messenger app to my phone, and he was trying to score black as in black tar heroin, the cheapest option for the addicted. I was able to pull up his messenger conversations going back months, and it was all the same convo. Got any black? To which others would respond either yay or no. I have to show this to the gas station attendant, who is my friend by now. Maybe he knows the guy. We just muse about the whole thing, and then for amusement's sake I respond to a couple of messages with stuff like, Sorry, man, I've gone straight, you know, just for laughs, and then off into the night. Sometime next morning, I wake up to the sound of my phone making noises I've never heard it make. It's a phone call through the Messenger app. I didn't even know it could do this, but whatever. Out of curiosity, I answer it. It's the junkie's sister. She's trying to find her brother, and she wants to know if I can help her. I say, uh, I don't think so. 
but I do tell her what I saw the other night, and she tells me her family has been trying to get her brother clean for the last 15 years, and thus I learn his whole backstory. He had been lying to them and stealing from them for years, and these habits seemed to have followed him out onto the street, as I would find out later. Three or four months go by and I don't see the junkie. But then one night, about 10 p.m., I get a call to pick someone up over at the Dairy Mart on Pioneer and B Street. And it's him. He's wigging out. He needs to go to the ER at McKenzie Willamette. It's really important. I can well guess that he's overdosing, or he thinks he is. I drive him there. He gets out, acting the part of one about to die. Maybe not even acting. But he can't pay me for his ride because he left his wallet at the Dairy Mart, quote-unquote. Fucking shitbag. I have no desire to hold the junkie up if he's really ODing, but I know he's lying to me. At least he hadn't made me drive him around this time. This ride was a straight shot and probably took all of three minutes. So I let it go, and then off into the night, promising myself next time I see him I'm going to knock his goddamn teeth out because he just robbed me of ten bucks, basically. And I should explain something here. It's not about the ten bucks. It's about the labor I wasted. But even more, it's about the lying. It's about the principle. I want this motherfucker dead, and I'm sure there are a hundred other people that feel the same way. I fantasize about smashing his face and realize that I'm just grinding my teeth over nothing. I've seen him a couple of times since, each time looking more like death itself. Indeed, his bare existence seems to suggest a metaphor worthy of Chaucer's highway robbers. And that's how I think of him now. Death in life, as Coleridge put it. And if I haven't smashed his face yet, it's only because I know that life will do so much worse things to him than I am capable of. Episode number 14, The Boy with Angel Eyes. I met him before I started driving cabs, in another capacity. He looks to be in his early 20s, with wild brown hair and a face that reminds me of the poet Arthur Rimbaud. There is indeed an uncanny resemblance. He wears ragged clothes and is almost always in motion, as though unable to keep still, always seemingly preoccupied with something, presumably the demons in his head. He might be on meth, or this might just be his general demeanor. It's hard to tell. Anyway, in my mind he is the boy with angel eyes because angel's eyes always look sad in Christian statuary. The story of the boy with angel eyes is not a story so much as an acquaintance. I'd see him around Kesey Square, digging in the trash, and occasionally he'd work up the nerve to approach me and politely ask me for a cigarette. It got to the point where I'd just offer him a cigarette whenever I'd see him. He'd say thank you, take it, and just walk away. On a couple occasions, I bought him glazed donuts from Voodoo, and he'd mutter the very same thank you, and then go off on his own somewhere, or just linger nearby. Once, while I was at Kesey Square chatting with some travelers, the boy with angel eyes came by, pacing and yelling about something, which is not that unusual for him, 
and he climbed right up on the bronze statue of the Kesey family and just started kicking Ken Kesey's bronze face. Bam! 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 We all ignored it and went on talking. For among the motley downtown crowd, such behavior is not all that unusual. It continued. Bam! 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 As though he had a vendetta against the Keezys. The line from Yates about great art beaten down came to mind, but my sentiment was one of sadness for him, the boy with angel eyes. His eyes looked sadder than I'd ever seen them. In that moment, I felt sorry for this boy in a way that I'd never really felt sorry for any of the other travelers, and I was willing to help him if I could. Bam! 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 Some weeks later, I was sitting at Kesey Square in my cab waiting for calls, and the boy with angel eyes came up to my van looking pretty strung out and frustrated. He asked me if I could take him to Buckley House, a place in the wit that offers sobering and detoxification services. I could tell that he'd worked up the nerve just to ask. Of course, he didn't have any money. But I wasn't busy, so I was happy to give him a free ride about a mile or so. He remained bashfully quiet the whole ride, just looking nervous and scared like a caged animal. I dropped him off and drove on into the night. I don't remember any other interactions with the boy with angel eyes after that, but I'd still see him all over town, always alone, always pacing and fighting his demons. The last I remember seeing him, I was driving down 11th Street near downtown, and he was huddled in the rain under a blanket in a stairwell. I think he saw me as I passed, and possibly even recognized me. I didn't stop, but now I kind of wish I had. Not because I think I could have helped him in any way, you see, but because I never really got anything so much as a story out of him. And that is also why he's the boy with angel eyes. Somehow he seems to belong not to this world, but to another. A feeling I can understand all too well as a nighttime cabbie. Thus he is not a story to me, but something more like a presence. And in some ways a reminder of what I might have become had I not been born into a certain economic bracket, having received the benefits of a decent middle-class education, and been provided some foundational means of support and self-care. I don't know whatever became of the boy with angel eyes. For all I know, he may no longer be among the living, but somehow he will travel with me forever as the story that got away. Episode number 15, MILF BOY one night around 11 p.m., I got a call to the poor house in East Springfield. I pull up, an overweight white dude in his mid-twenties, but looking like he's in his mid-thirties, comes stumbling out of the bar with a jovial expression and tells me he's on his way to fuck a MILF. Thus, I shall refer to him in the course of this story as MILF Boy. As we get going along 42nd Street, MILF Boy tells me I look a little down. 
but the fact of the matter is I'm just not that stoked to have him in my cab. And I'm a little disgusted by his drunk behavior, but nothing too out of the ordinary. I shrug and tell him I'm doing just fine. Milf Boy's a bubbling monologue. He bubbles so much I wouldn't be able to get a word in edgewise even if I tried. From the details he related to me as we were cruising along Main Street, I gather that Milf Boy's father had died in the past few years. And from the inheritance he received, Milf Boy had gone and bought up some real estate and become a proud slumlord, thus moving up the echelons of the class hierarchy. Life was all about money to Milf Boy, and now he was going to do me a favor by giving me unsolicited advice about how to invest it. You know, so I wouldn't have to be such a peon cab driver. All you gotta do is get a bank loan. Then buy up property and charge rent and you got money rolling in. You don't even have to do anything. This is all very wonderful to Milf Boy. His attitude and demeanor couldn't be a better illustration of Marx's critique of capitalist ideology. My mind went searching for a question I could put to him that might challenge some of his basic assumptions. For occasionally I've had some fine teaching moments in my cab. But this was not going to be one of them. Milf boy don't give a fuck. What do you think about Milf boy, Tildy? Eventually we pull into a hilly neighborhood in Springfield's east side and start driving up some winding roads. I'm talking, taking him to the MILF's house, but he tells me he lives in the same neighborhood, so I ask him if he likes it up here. He says something about how great it is to not have to look down at all those peasants down there, presumably referring to the street urchins prowling up and down Main Street any given hour of the night. The critique of capitalist ideology is now complete. Finally, I pull into the driveway of a large house. As I drop him off and run his card, Milf Boy tells me that he wants me to have a good night, so he's going to give me a really good tip. His ride is about $15, and he adds a $40 tip on the card reader, the best tip I've ever received, as fate would have it. I just say, thanks. That's really generous. And he goes bubbling off to fuck his milf. I drive off into the night with that unclean feeling. Episode number 16. Girl in a bath towel. Sometimes people get in my cab and be like, what's your craziest story? When I seriously consider that question, no particular story ever comes to mind. Instead, a chaotic horde of details that don't seem to cohere or coalesce into a solid, singular narrative just sort of tax the memory. Then there is the ineffable strangeness of the night a wash of intoxicated mayhem that takes place in the wee hours while all the little nocturnal creatures pursue their natural aims and desires. One story comes to mind. 
When I was driving cabs last summer, I got a call out to West Eugene around 5.30 a.m., right as rose-fingered dawn was breaking. I pull up. Two older guys quickly usher a young woman of maybe 22 out into my cab, and then they disappear. Right away I notice she's wearing nothing but a bath towel, and I'm driving her toward the U of O campus. She's in pretty good spirits, nothing really amiss as far as cognizant ability. I didn't even have to ask her what happened. She just started pouring out details amidst some embarrassed laughter, and her story had all the markings of female desire, conquest, and victory. She had just had a one-night stand, and she didn't give a fuck what anyone else thought. I loved how unabashed she was about all the sex magic, for I feel like I can usually tell when someone is coming home from a one-night stand, and I think it's hilarious when people act all sheepish about it. What I gathered from her account was this. She hooked up with some dude, went home with him, clothes came off. But at some point early in the morning, her dude has to leave. So, still half drunk, butt naked, and perhaps still a little dazed from the nightly ritual, she gets up and wanders off in the dark to find the bathroom. In her wandering, she somehow ends up at a neighbor's house and tries to crawl in bed with them. Of course, they freak out, thinking she's some random crazy person, and threaten to call Cahoots, which is our mobile crisis unit that deals with random naked people wandering into strangers' houses at 5.30 in the morning. This must have snapped her back to reality, because ultimately she is able to convince them that she's not crazy. There's been a mistake, and so on. So they order her a cab and give her a bath towel, which is where I show up in the story. I'm not totally clear on why she was unable to retrieve her clothes, but it's likely she wouldn't have remembered where they were anyway, or which house it was, for that matter, where she had left them. Of course her phone and everything else is with her clothes. She had no money. I was searching my mind for every way to tell her I'd get her home safe, trying not to creep her out. We'd figure out payment another time, not to worry about it right now. Then it occurred to me that she had no keys. How was she even going to get in her place? She assured me that one of her roommates could let her in, or as a last resort she could sneak through a window if she had to. Okay, cool. Then all of a sudden I found myself trying to fight off the mental image of her crawling through a dorm window in a bath towel. I drop her off at her place and she thanks me, tells me she insists on paying when she gets some money. I've taken collateral before, but obviously I'm not going to take her bath towel away. It's a good thing we were both able to laugh about this. I gave her my card, and she did end up calling me later to pay for the ride. She even left a m nice message on my voicemail. I never returned the call. The story itself was payment. Episode number 17. 
getting robbed. Perhaps the most annoying drawback to driving cabs is getting robbed. But this point demands some clarification. You see, no one ever held a gun to my head or anything like that. What's more likely to happen in the cabbie life is that you drive somebody somewhere only to find out they don't have any money. I've already hinted at this in The Junkie and in another context, Girl in a Bath Towel. As a cabbie, you learn to pick out the junkies and tweakers pretty quick because drug addicts are the most likely to rip you off. And it's not out of malice, you see. It's more like sheer ignorance of any other than egoistic concerns. It's as if the world outside the drug addict's immediate and peripheral needs is shrouded in a kind of fog-like oblivion. Unlike so-called rational beings, who are supposedly governed by intuitive principles of time past and time future, that's to say, the ability to exercise some amount of forethought by calculating an approximate fare according to a known distance in miles and making sure one has enough money to cover this. Drug addicts, on the other hand, tend to live entirely in the present. Miles and minutes often don't add up to much and hardly even register a blip on the radar of consciousness. Money is just paper, as it is to some of the gamblers coming home from Jasper's Deli at 3 a.m., but all the drug addict's concerned about is getting from point A to point B, like a snail, in a way. There seems to be little or no forethought about anything like a means of getting there. As a cabbie, I was almost always willing to cut deals over fares if people were just a few bucks short or whatever, especially when they told me in advance. I was always glad to help people out, and I always appreciated their honesty. And maybe this is the place to mention that the proper etiquette on the part of passengers, if you're not sure you can cover your fare, is to let the driver know in advance, hey, I've got this much money, can you take me to this place? And then they'll say either, yeah, or no, or I'll take you this far. And probably nine times out of ten, they'd be willing to take you wherever you need to go. This can save you a confrontation down the road. As if dealing with drunk assholes isn't bad enough, the worst thing to have to deal with as a cabbie is some shitbag you know has no intention whatsoever of paying you. You're forced into one of two, maybe three courses of action. One, let it go and move on, time being money. Two, Call the cops and wait for them to take a police report, in which case nothing generally happens and you'll end up wasting a lot of time. Or three, take matters into your own hands, and I'm just thinking like, punch the shit bag. Generally, I took the first course of action. The second course was tried enough times to learn better. And as for the third, I've certainly wanted to punch some shit bags, but haven't yet. I have kicked some out of my car. The first time I remember getting ripped off was by some dude coming from one of the warehouses out near the airport. I drove him to some apartment complex and he's like, alright, my brother's gonna pay you. And then he goes off to get his brother and just disappears on a $16 ride. That's probably when I learned to keep things as collateral, like a cell phone, until I had cash or a card in hand. 
Another time I drove some scary-looking hillbilly dude out to the woods off Marcola Road, stopped at an unlit parking lot in the middle of nowhere, and he just handed me like six crumped-up dollar bills on like a $12 ride and took off. What was I going to do, chase him around the woods? Obviously not. I was going to take his six bucks and get the fuck out of there, call dispatch, and have him put on the no-fly list. Another time I drove some awful couple all the way out to Venita while they argued the whole way. Once I finally got there, the guy's credit card declined, and I ended up losing 40 bucks partly because the collateral he gave me wasn't worth anything. In hindsight, I should have made, made him take off his shoes. He could walk his ass home barefoot. This one chapped me more than the others, only because the guy seemed so nonchalant about the whole thing after I'd had to put up with him and his lame-ass girlfriend for half an hour. Another time, for some reason I was caught off guard when a young drugged-out lady I took home from the Sherry's off Pioneer Parkway at the crack of dawn one morning almost broke down crying when I told her she owed me $19. She swore her partner had already paid me in advance, and when I assured her this was not the case, she swore she'd pay me later, which, of course, never happened, wasn't ever going to happen. There were others, but these are the ones that stand out somehow. As a cabbie, you learn to try to never let these kind of things happen again, and that's about all you learn from experiences like this. One way of doing this is demanding payment up front, but I was never very good at this. Mostly I only did it when I was going 20 miles or more. I suppose this involves learning how to trust one's instincts about people, or perhaps even learning how to develop better instincts about people overall. Street wisdom. I remember how, in one instance, somehow I got suckered into helping a tweaker find his drug dealer at 2am, out by the Sherry's off River Road, and once the meter was up to like 30 bucks, I just had to say, alright dude, end of ride, and I made him get out of my car. And that's the proper way to deal with drug addicts who don't give a fuck about you and who will, if given the opportunity, waste your time like no others in the night. But you're always going to get caught off guard at some point. And even among the seasoned cabbies, there's always going to be something out there in the night. Some situation that you could never be ready for. Episode number 18, The Worst Ride Ever. Sometimes people ask about the worst passengers I've had, and when I tell them, their response is something like, that's crazy, I would have kicked them out. But if you've driven cabs for a while, you know this is not as easy as simply asking someone to get out of your car. It takes mental and physical preparedness. It can land you in a fist fight, or worse. My method of kicking people out is to be as unequivocal as possible. The magic words are either, get out, or get the fuck out. You want them to understand that you've reached the end of your rope and this is not up for debate. You also want them to understand that you mean now. You're done. You're not having any more of it. There's not going to be a conversation following. 
Kicking someone out, however, requires a space to actually do it. Company rules for cabs and rideshare must allow drivers to do this, but the stipulation is that if you're going to kick someone out, you should do it in a public space where they can get another ride, or in any case, not die from some lack of basic human needs. Not that this is something you're going to be the least bit concerned about in the heat of the moment. Thus, it is difficult to kick someone out when you're on a highway. The worst ride I ever had was a group of four, two heterosexual couples, actually, all white, middle class, 30 somethings, kind of slobbish looking and out of shape. I picked them up from a swank new sushi bar over on the north side of Eugene. They were going to a dive on Main Street in East Springfield called Conway's. As the first one got in my car, I asked, What's up? And he just gave me an entitled and condescending look. Nothing too unusual so far, though. Another guy and two ladies, their partners, get in, all roaring with laughter as they listen to the alpha male friend's story about how he fucked some chick in the back of a cab once. I could hear him talking about how he had her all spread eagle, but this has to be illustrated with exaggerated hand gestures. The rest of their convo I've repressed from memory, but it's all pretty much the same. I remember the alpha male saying at some point that he's smacked that fucking spick bitch or something like that. And all of this was as funny to them as it was cringeworthy to me. Trying to talk to people like this about their bigotry is a recipe for disaster, especially when you're dealing with drunk assholes like these, and these ones were pretty well sloshed. I probably would have kicked anyone out after the spick comment, but the problem was we were on a highway and we were about to get off the highway. And once we got off the highway, we'd be there, at their destination. So if I kicked them out now, I'd be out 30 bucks. I'd been listening to the classical station the whole way, and the classical host was playing Bach. When I couldn't bear listening to any more of the four shitbags, I'd turn it up so loud as to drown them out but I could still hear one of the ladies in the far back complaining about how this sounds like church music. Oh, good, I thought. I'd turn it up even louder. I figured I'd just drown them in it as much as possible, baptize them in organ music, as it were. Soon we're pulling up to their bar. The couple in the way back gets out, heads inside, and the guy sitting right behind me pulls out his money and literally throws it in my face. His partner is lingering outside the cab, waiting for him. He had already said something to her about how he's going to have a talk with this driver or something like that. I say, get the fuck out. And next thing I know, he's literally screaming in my face, The customer is always right! The customer is always right! In the calmest tone I could muster, I said something like, Everybody knows that's bullshit. But he just kept screaming, The customer is always right! The customer is always right! And now his partner is doing the whole, come on, honey, thing, as if I'm the one holding him up. At this point, I'm more irate than I've ever been in my life. I jump out of the cab and just stand there with my arms crossed and the door open, looking straight at him and hoping he comes around the front of the van to get in my face, because now I'm itching for a fight, even if it costs me my life, 
and all I want to do now is reduce him to a puddle of blood and brains and broken bones right outside this shithole bar, right in front of his shitbag partner. Fortunately, he doesn't come over, which now I realize may have saved my life. Instead, he just stands next to his lady and yells, There's a reason why you work as a fucking cab driver! As though cab drivers are the scum of the earth, the lowest of the low. The lady starts tugging at his arm, saying, It's not worth it, honey. This cabbie's just an idiot. Or something to that effect. They go into the bar, and I drive off with my blood boiling and my heart pounding so fast I have to pull over a minute later just to get a hold of myself. But my adrenaline is running, and I can't calm down. All I can think about is smashing the shitbag into the ground. I've tried to debrief this story to myself in a number of ways. On the one hand, I doubt this guy was anything so high and mighty that anyone would want to trade places with him. It wouldn't surprise me if he was some kind of retail manager. The customer is always right! On the other hand, I needed, a, I needed to understand my own reaction and the way it affected me for months afterwards. I'd get so angry just thinking about this guy that I'd end up gnashing my teeth about it, then have to do push-ups or something just to drive my anger into the ground and banish it. But that anger lasted, and it seethed for months, and it turned me into something. It showed me what the night could turn me into, this monster that I could become. Episode number 19, The Lady with the Roses. My shift's almost up. It's 4.50 a.m. and quiet in the 205. That's cabbie code for East Springfield. Tonight has been a literal blur as there's a thick blanket of fog hanging over the Willamette Valley. My last passenger was a huge rotund man with two monster trucks in his driveway. I told him I didn't think he had enough trucks and he let out some bellicose laughter from the depths of hell. I couldn't agree with you more, he said, and I knew he was serious, which I thought was pretty funny. He tipped me generously, I think, just for that. The clerk at 7-Eleven looks even more misanthropic than me at this hour. The night has been steady, somewhat unremarkable except for the weed party we cabbied for, thrown by one of our idiot company owners who proceeded to let me know what a favor he was doing for us all by paying us to basically sit and do nothing for two hours. I even got through a few pages of Max Weber. Toward the end of their lame-ass weed party, dude bro McCompany owner jumped out in front of my car, drunk, while I was pulling into a spot, and I let him know exactly what I thought of his stupid shenanigan. When I wouldn't shake his yuppie hand for the third time, he told me I could go home, which is awkward considering he's not technically my boss and can't really fire me. Anyway, I'm almost at the point of quitting this taxi gig, which would be a relief at this point. I'd make more money driving for Uber and Lyft, but I'd miss some of our regular clients, especially the ride source passengers. And the stories wouldn't be as interesting, I don't think. 
I did have one interesting ride tonight. I picked up a flag fare from downtown Eugene, an elderly woman who I know as the Lady with the Roses, because she hangs out downtown selling roses sometimes around Kesey Square. She tried to shove a $20 bill in my hand as soon as she got in the car and appeared to be either deaf or mute. I was only able to ascertain where she lived from an ID card and a series of hermeneutically near-impossible-to-decipher hand signals. But once situated, the ride was pleasant. We listened to classical music and drove on through the thick fog and the darkest darkness, which is Springfield's east side, where streetlights are not abundant. I think she even slept and possibly dreamed something. Her fare was $27. When I finally pulled to a stop after another round of strange hand signals, she shoved the same $20 bill in my hand and carefully selected two of her best roses for me, a red one and a white one, which I thought was more than enough, and even felt sweet considering I wasn't about to try and figure out which hand gestures would translate into, you still owe me money, actually. There are times usually in the slow morning hours, driving around by myself, when it seems sometimes like there's still someone in the car with me, some ghost passenger, or perhaps a fragment of someone else's left-behind dreams. I've had to do a double-take on occasion just to make sure no one was there, and then it all comes back, the open road glistening with frost, the uncanny stillness, like the sound of children sleeping in their beds. All the sheer wonder of life in all its strange, fantastic shapes and the universal strangeness of the night. Episode number 20, Breaking Up with 111. I quit my cab gig tonight. Last night I made nothing, and tonight in three hours I did two rides, one of which was a total shit show. I picked some lady up from the Driftwood, a dive over on Main Street in Springfield. She was so drunk she couldn't stand up. The bartender helped her out to the cab, shoved a $10 bill in my hand, and told me to get her home. Apparently she lives about a half mile from the bar, but as luck would have it, my fuse was well lit before we got even halfway there. She had a ton of stuff with her, bags with random belongings, purses, wallets, etc., all just kind of chaotically strewn about her person, and she couldn't keep any of it together. She babbled the whole way in half sentences. Every other word is asshole and motherfucker. She must have asked me 15 times where I was taking her, and I must have replied 15 times, home. This address, pointing at the address on my tablet, reading it out loud to her. We finally get somewhere near her destination, but I can't find it. I try telling her that she has to help me find her place, so I need her to look around and let me know if any of these houses look like hers. At one point, she's having me pull forward, back up, pull forward, and back up again. Suddenly it occurs to me that she's too drunk to see straight. Finally she's like, That's it! 
That's my house! For a moment, I feel an overwhelming sense of relief. I help her out of the cab, carrying half of her stuff for her, which still keeps getting strewn everywhere and trying to help her walk at the same time. But she's not cooperating with any rational suggestions at the moment. She'd rather just cuss me out in indecipherable sounds. She keeps falling down in the yard. I keep helping her up. Finally, I give up and just let her sit in the yard for like five minutes. The front door is only about ten feet away, but trying to get her to that door has become an epic battle between practical reason and Dionysian forces far beyond my control. At this point, I hate this woman so much I could hardly care if she freezes to death in this yard. Somehow I finally managed to get her to the door. She stands right in front of it, teetering drunkenly back and forth, but just stands there and doesn't do anything. At this point, I'd guess I've spent at least 20 minutes on a ride that should have taken all of three minutes. I feel my epic battle with the Dionysian forces nearing its end. All I have to do is make sure she gets inside this door, and my job is finished here. Then I can leave. At some point, I'm literally telling her, Now you have to find your keys and go inside. It hasn't yet occurred to me that there may be no keys. And then, as though some adrenaline were starting to kick into her, she looks at me and says, You can't make me go in here! This is not my house! Cosmic facepalm. She can't tell me her address, or see straight, or navigate me in any sensible way. She can't even tell me if she lives in a house, a mobile home, an apartment, or a fucking dumpster. Now I'm furious and defeated, it seems, by the Dionysian forces. It takes what seems like another ten minutes just to get her and all of her stuff back in my cab. I'm absolutely livid at this point, not even hiding it. And now we're screaming at each other. But through the screaming, at some point I think I hear her say that she's in the mobile home park nearby. So I drive to it and tell her she needs to help me find it. But all she can do at this point is scream at me. Now at my rope's final end, I turn around and drive her like a bat out of hell straight back to the bar where I found her. By the time we get back, her stuff is strewn all over my van, again. She can't sit up straight, and after another epic struggle which takes up a few minutes, I get her and all of her stuff back inside the bar. The same bartender that shoved the $10 bill in my hand earlier looks at us lengthwise down the bar in sheer horror. I slam the $10 bill down on the bar, yell at her to find this lady another fucking ride, or something to that effect, and leave before she can even respond. As I'm driving back to the lot to drop my van off for good, dispatch is trying to radio me and have me go back and pick this lady up again. The bartender had probably called and complained. I'm fucking done! I scream over the radio. Don't say fuck on the radio! The dispatcher yells back. I'm fucking done! I yell back before permanently disabling my radio. And here, I must take a short detour into subjectivity. You see, dear passenger... Despite popular opinion that cabbies are interested in nothing but running up the meter and gouging people, 
Some cabbies actually take pleasure in getting people safely and quickly where they need to go, and see this as a noble public service in which they can make a living. So, having been unable to perform my noble public service, I felt like I had failed for the first time as a driver. What I mean to say is, this is not a story of triumph or victory. It's certainly a story of defeat. The night was still young when I got back to the lot. It wasn't even completely dark yet. I texted my vehicle owner to let him know I was quitting. He texted me back to let me know that he was pissed that I was quitting, that I wasn't even finishing out my shift. Because there's nothing out there, I text back. Earlier in the week, I had been defrocked of my ride source certification, mainly just because I didn't want to quit smoking weed, and I knew I'd have to get piss tested again if I wanted to keep it. The gig economy had just moved back into Eugene, Springfield, and the more quote-unquote reasonable passengers, motivated by cheaper fares, had mostly switched over to Uber and Lyft. The cab company owners, not to be confused with my vehicle owner, responded to this existential threat to the survival of their company not by trying to remain competitive, but simply by cutting drivers or letting the mess sort itself out or just giving in to sheer denialism that anything significant was even happening. Partly out of anger and partly from nostalgia for what I saw as a dying institution that I had grown to love so much. I mean this whole cabby lifestyle in general, with all its antiquated oddities and idiosyncratic ways. I made the case to my vehicle owner that all that was left for us now was to mop up drunk assholes over in the 204 and 205, Springfield, like the ones I had just picked up. I described the encounter to him. In the end, he wasn't pissed so much that I was quitting as that I might stiff him on the lease. I confess that offended me. I wanted him to want to keep me around because I'm a good worker, or at least I'd like to think so. Not just because I'm a reliable source of income for him and his family and their right to bourgeois upward class mobility or whatever. I knew the vehicle owners were struggling a little, but they were still doing way better than us. I told him I'd get him his money, which I promptly did from my savings, and that if that was all he was worried about, then he could lie his fears to rest. I told him that I'd only texted him in the first place to let him know our business relationship had come to an end, and although I hated the company owners we both worked for, I think all the drivers did, at least he had always been cool with me, and I appreciated that. Maybe I hit a note of sympathy in his tone, I'm not sure. He muttered something about how these tech giants just come in and take up everything, leaving nothing for the other drivers. I sort of rejected that line of thinking and interjected something like, well... Isn't that just capitalism being capitalist? He said something about how this would all blow over, that we'd just have to wait it out. I wanted him to know that I respected him as a person, but he wasn't going to sell me on this false hope. After all, hadn't all of us, drivers, vehicle owners, company owners, known for months now that the gig economy would arrive, and when it did, 
It would crush the cab companies. Maybe I'll have some Lyft and Uber stories in the near future, but I'm going to miss Van 111, my seven-passenger 2005 Toyota Sienna with 600,000-plus miles on it, V6 engine, 230 horsepower, beige leather interior, sunroof, stereo with old-school tape deck, CD player, radio, automatic sliding side door, bike rack, cozy movable armrest like something you'd find on a spaceship, nice cup holders for my water bottle and coffee thermos, and the magic power to convert fossilized fuel into an epic social force, releasing greenhouse gas into the air, guzzling motor oil like a fucking wino. What I mean to say is that the thing was a relic, but then I love relics. We'd had so many great adventures together, and now here we were, like breaking up. For someone who's never driven cabs, it's hard to explain this attachment to or detachment from your cab. It's not just a car. It's your flying office. It's your time machine. It's your magic carpet. In some uncanny way, it's a part of you. And so now here I was losing a part of myself. It seemed as though I'd been defeated by the night. wild turkeys of Glenwood and Eugene. If my passengers managed to hang with Possum through one of those long car rides from Roseburg up through the Umpqua Valley in the evening, the southern Oregon sun throwing lovely shafts of orange and gold down on the traffic and sylvan landscape along the I-5, or driving up 126 from Eugene toward Bend, the Willamette National Forest towering over us with its shaggy green shoulders, barely visible through the epic fog and the first gray shafts of morning light, majestic trees robed in auras of purple and azure all around, the last traces of the moon barely visible in the late night, early morning sky. Well, if we have managed to hang this long, dear passenger, we must have shared some stories. And if we have listened to each other's stories with rapt interest, bellicose laughter, or heartfelt sorrow and empathy, even while dragging ourselves off to work under the grinding weight of all the stress and pain that late-stage capitalism has to offer, or fighting to survive another night on the dirty, rain-soaked streets of Eugene, well, then we are connected by one more silken thread in the community. And all communities are built on stories for none can stand on brick and mortar alone. This is no profound philosophical assertion, really. It's just a stupid fact about how social beings' lives are structured. Stories are everywhere, just waiting to be told. The most interesting ones aren't usually even about anything. They can be about so much nothing that the nothing itself becomes the something and voila, behold a creation ex nihil. You are a magician if you can tell stories. Lest anyone should wonder at the curious manner in which a storytelling possum might spend its diurnal course, a couple anecdotes involving wild turkeys come to mind. 
I will relate them as exhibits A and B. Exhibit A. Yesterday afternoon, as I'm driving around the sylvan hills and residential neighborhoods of Glenwood, I spot a dozen or so turkeys foraging along the side of the road. I actually counted eleven, but there were probably more. I pull over, put my hazards on. All of a sudden, I'm intensely watching these majestic birds foraging all over the place, darting gracefully through the tall grass and foliage, the largest male trailing the flock with his stout feathers proudly displayed in colors worthy of Milton's rebel angels. Suddenly, a woman in a fancy SUV pulls in front of me, blocking my view, and starts saying something, but I can't understand what she's saying, and then she drives off. The turkeys all exit stage left, en masse. Now I look like a creep staking out someone's house. It occurs to me at that moment that the woman hadn't noticed the turkeys and was just asking if I needed help. We kind of take the turkeys for granted. Typical Eugene culture. The hospitality, I mean. I've just given her the dirtiest look I ever gave. Exhibit B. While hanging around the WJ skate park in the early morning hours as dawn was breaking one summer day, I noticed a bunch of turkeys gathered in mass like a horde of pirates, tromping up Jefferson from the Rose Garden, moving on to the corner at first, then grazing for some time underneath the 105 bridge. There are some interesting specimens among them, but the one that stands out to me the most is the one with the club foot the one that refuses to hobble like an old pirate with a wooden leg, out of sheer pride, perhaps, moving its appendages in all the ways a non-hobbling turkey would, a big fleshy glob at the end of its leg where a foot should be. And what if this turkey, too, has a story? I thought. What would it be? And it suddenly occurred to me that there was something here that could be a good punchline for a joke. But beyond thinking of a name for this turkey, Drumstick, the joke never came, never really materialized, and it's not nice to go around insulting the maimed turkeys in our community. No more calls were coming in on rideshare. All the airport crowd had flown off by now, or was getting ready to fly off, signaling that it was probably time for Possum to go home and feed the cats and go to bed, which is exactly what I did. And that night slash morning and for half the afternoon, I would dream about that turkey with the club foot and think of it somehow as Lord Byron's spirit animal.